Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their insights and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by TaylorMade Golf, the PGA Tour Superstore, Golf Pride, Two Under, Zexio, Sun Mountain Golf Bags, Finn Scooters, Making the Game More Fun, Bionic Gloves, and the McLemore Club. Experience life above the clouds. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks, and welcome to Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and I am so excited about the night show. I've been looking forward to it for a while because I've got three guests who are really going to knock your socks off. Leading off tonight and making her seventh appearance with me is 2010 LPGA National Teacher of the Year, Cindy Miller. Over the years with us, she's helped us a lot with the mental side of the game and helping us develop confidence and figuring out our it our purpose, and why we play the game or anything else that we do, be sure to check out Cindy's website, cindymillergolf.com. Tonight, for our friends in places where it's just starting to warm up or for those of us just getting ready to start our golf season, we're going to talk about how to knock the rust off of our swings. And for those of us trying to break 80 or 90 for the first time this year, right? that's our goal. we got to break 80 or 90. This has got to be the year. We're going to find out how to get over that mental hump when Cindy joins me just a few minutes from now. Following her, I'm going to get a visit from Susie Whaley. Susie's truly an amazing person, folks. She was the first female to do several things in the game. Back in 2003, she became the first female to qualify to play in a PGA Tour event since 1945 when Babe Diedrich Zaharias did it. She qualified to play in the Greater Hartford Open. She was also the first female president of the PGA of America. She's also a PGA Master Professional, and like Cindy, one of the top instructors in the game. I'm very excited to have Susie as part of the show. A lot to get into tonight with her. She'll join me about 25 minutes from now. And then we'll round out tonight's show with a visit from one of Golf Digest's top 100 instructors, and one of the top instructors in the state of Georgia until just recently, and that's Brandon Stooksbury. Brandon just recently accepted a position as the head PGA professional at Metairie Country Club in Louisiana. So we'll talk about his new job. Plus, he's a short game guru, so we're going to get a lot of tips about better chip shots, plus getting out of the fairway bunker or a greenside bunker and how to hit it close when Brandon joins me about 45 minutes from now. So there you have it, folks. More great stories, tips, and information are coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the Team. Thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. Before we get started, I want to remind you about our friends over at the McLemore. My buddies and I are heading up there for our annual golf trip in June, and I absolutely cannot wait to be there. The McLemore is a beautiful community resort and golf course just 35 minutes outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee on Lookout Mountain. Folks, go online to themclemore.com to check out what a wonderful golf course and other amenities they have available for you up there. Their new clubhouse and bar opened up last fall. Folks, you got to see this place to believe how great it is. The golf course is co-designed by our friends Bill Bergen and Reese Jones, and our friend and PGA Tour caddy Kip Henley sent outside of Pebble Beach 
It's the most beautiful 18th hole he's ever seen. And golf digest agreed, oh, by the way, naming it the best finishing hole in America since 2000. See why they all say that by checking out the course and the resort online at themaclemore.com. And folks, this segment of the show is brought to you by TaylorMade and their TP5 and TP5X golf balls. High draw? Check. Low fade? Check. Bump and run? Out of the sand? Flop shot? Guess what? Check, check, and check. No matter what shot you need to pull off, there's one ball that's better for them all, and that's the all-new TP5 and TP5X from TaylorMade. With a newly redesigned dimple pattern that decreases drag and increases lift, it's the number one ball in golf no matter the shot. So whether you need to hit it high over the trees, under or even through them, hit TP5 or TP5X, the one ball designed to handle it all. Check them out online by going to tailormadegolf.com for more information. Okay, now back in making her seventh appearance with me here on Next on the T is 2010 LPGA National Teacher of the Year and a wonderful person. Cindy Miller. Cindy is from Silver Creek, New York, which is about 45 miles southwest of Buffalo. She played her college golf as a walk-on, mind you, at the University of Miami, where she served as team captain and helped Miami win back-to-back national championships in 1977 and 78. She was an All-American her senior season. She won the New York State Amateur Championship in 1978 and qualified for the LPGA Tour in 79. She competed out on the LPGA Tour for a few years, played in five U.S. Opens, She's a Class A LPGA professional. Golf Digest has named her one of the top 50 women teachers in America. Back in 2011, she was inducted into the Greater Buffalo Sports Hall of Fame. And on top of all of that, she's a fantastic speaker and one of the great people you get to meet in this life. And I'm very excited to have her back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Cindy, thanks for coming back on the show. Thank you, Chris. How are you? I'm fantastic, thank you, Cindy. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. The sun was out today in Buffalo. <laughs> Good for you. Catch us up. And What's been going on with you so far outside. in 2021? Oh, my goodness. Golf is open. So thank God for that. We teach in a golf dome uh, when it's snowing in Buffalo. And today we were fortunate enough to be outside, but we have never, ever given this many golf lessons, ever. So it's so great because, People are getting excited, and and what we found is there's an awful lot of kids that last year during COVID, they couldn't play hockey or soccer or baseball, and golf was open. So they came and they tried it, and they actually like it. And we've probably got uh, 30 new kids students that really, really want to work at the game and maybe play college golf, which is great. Wow, that is awesome. So talk about that, you know, with an influx of of new students, what's that been like for you and Alan? Well, we're crazy busy, um, but it's it's awesome. You know, we did we did do our boot camp. We did uh, we normally do one in January, two in February, one in March, one in April. We did the one in January. We take people down to Orlando to Orange County National, and we do two, three, and four day schools. We did a two-day school in January. Then we we skipped February. We were waiting for the vaccine to kick in, and then we did March and April. So it's just it's amazing. I mean, we're teaching from nine thirty, ten o'clock in the morning till nine o'clock at night. So it's awesome. Speaking of awesome, I love your website, CindyMillerGolf.com, and 
you've got a new video since I last checked it out, and you talk about four reasons why someone has come to your website and, and how you can help them. Talk about what those things are and how you can help visitors coming to your site. Well, number one is I need to learn to play golf, or I want to learn to play golf. So there could be, I want to do this for fun. doesn't matter how old you are. I just want to start playing. And a lot of new, a lot of new people, you know, again, picked up the game last year because it was the one thing they could do outside. The second reason is I need to learn to play golf and use it as a business tool. And it's really funny because I have a, a session I do, a speaking engagement that's called From the Back Nine to the Boardroom. And Arizona State asked me if I would create an online program for their MBA students. So I did. And this program that's online, it's $97. And you can, it teaches you everything you need to know about playing the game except swinging the club. We've got other programs that we do that with. But it's so imperative that people that have never been around the sport become aware of what they need to do. You know, how do I make a tea time? What are all these clubs for? Where do I pull in if I'm playing in a corporate outing? Do I have to tip the guy? All these special things. So that's number one reason you would come to the website. You want to learn to play. Number two, you would come because you want to be more consistent. And how many times, you know, that's the main request of every person that ever comes in for a lesson. I just need to be more consistent. I can have good shots, but I can't do it on purpose when I want to. The third thing is you want to score better. You want to break four. Um, you want to break 100, you want to break 90, you want to break 80, you want to break 70. And so we want to really work on our game and get better. And the last reason is you're scared to death. You might be choking your guts out playing in the club championship or in a league and you're and you're worried about the shots and I, I call it playing with clenched butt cheeks. And, you know, <laughs> needless to say playing on the tour and playing on the Legends tour and being on two big breaks you know, I know exactly what it feels like to try to swing a club with clenched butt cheeks when you're scared to death. So that's the last reason somebody comes to the website. They want to get over their fear and play with more confidence. So, Cindy, I want to get into a lot of what you just said uh, in just a second. But for those folks up in your neck of the woods or further north or our friends around the globe uh, where it's cold, and it's now just starting, like you said, starting to get a little warmer so we can actually get outside. For those of us that, you know, we, we don't want to start off in granting bad habits. What are some things that we can do, sort of get back to fundamentals, if you will, to make sure we've got the right grip, the right posture, the right ball position, all of those things. How do we check that off to make sure we're going to start off on the right foot? Well, number one, I, you need to know what a square face looks like. So the mission of golf is to start the face square, pointing at a target, not your shoulders, but the club face square, and start the club face square, swing it back to the top of your back, swing it, bring it back to square. If you do that, you'll hit the ball straight. And and again, it's going to be hard to discuss that or make it make sense on the radio when we can't really see what you know a square face looks like. But let's pretend you have an iron, and it's sitting down on the ground. At the end of the grooves on each side of the face, the toe and the heel, there's straight lines at the end of those grooves. Those two lines should extend out straight beyond the face to where you want the ball to go. So if you 
do that, the toe of the club will be up off the ground a little bit. And so many people think that the toe should sit flush to the ground, but when you put the toe down, you're really shutting the face. So, number one, you got to make sure the face is square. Number two, the committee of they is something that drives me nuts. When you're with people that have played, you think they know what they're doing, and they tell you, oh, you got to act like you're sitting on a bar stool, keep your head down, your arms straight, shift your weight, turn your shoulders, hit the ball, follow through. Well, nobody looks like they're sitting on a bar stool. You have to hang over what I call partially puking. So you're bowing over <laughs> from the waist. Yeah, you got to hang over like you're partially puking. So you got to hang over from the waist, and the weight should be on the balls of your feet. Your arms are hanging relaxed. They're not tight. Your hands should be kind of under your chin. Distance from the ball, the top of your forward arm should be resting on the side of your chest. So don't reach out and lock your arms, because if you do that, you're going to swing it back with stiff arms, and then you're going to dig to China and hit all shots fast. So you need to really relax. I don't care if you grip it with split hand or uh, interlock or overlap. It doesn't matter to me. Um, as long as your back palm is going the same direction as the face. So if you're right-handed, your right hand should toss underhanded. It's pointing the same direction as club face, if you're left-handed, it's your left hand doing that. And then, you know, how do you hit it? Well, I would start with a little tiny piece, and I would start with a seven iron, and I would take half swing and just try to brush the teeth or clip the teeth and not lock the arms and dig the ground. So it's really important that you let the club head swing. And if you do that, it's going to help you hit it clean. You're going to get a feel for the head swinging because the club head swinging is going to give you club head speed, and it's, you're going to hit it straight. Cindy, you mentioned a moment ago one of the four reasons being we want to score better. For those of us, we're, you know, we're tired of shooting 81 and 82, or we're tired of shooting 91 or 92, and it's our goal. That we're gonna, this is the year. We're going to break 80. We're going to break 90. We're going to break 100, whatever it is. How do we get to sort of over that mental hurdle that allows us to freely go after it and, and actually break whatever that number is? Well, let's, let's use um, 90 as an example. First thing you have to do is you have to sit back and go through some of your rounds that you played. And hopefully you can remember the shots that you hit on, on the course. And if not, I keep track of my stats every time I play. I, I put an X on the card if I hit the fairway. I put an O if I hit the green. And then I put down how many putts I had. So that's really important. Numbers are important. And when you miss a fairway or a green, put L or R for left or right, and S and L for short or long. Very few people miss greens long. Very few because normally we don't take enough clubs to get to the hole. So I would I would logically look at your round and say, okay, why do I keep shooting 92? And if you back out of that and say, look, let's pretend you can't reach all the greens. If you can't reach the green, but you can be on the green, so hitting a green, for those who may not know what we're talking about, you're always allowed two putts. So par three, you should be on and one and two putts to make par. Par four, you allow two putts to get on the green, two, you two putts. 
Per five, you're on a green screen, two putts. So let's pretend you can't reach any of the green And you have to be on all par fours and three and two putts and all par fives and four and two putts and all par, I get par three on and two, two putts. So you bogey every hole. So that keeps you 90. Well, now there's probably one or two holes on the course, probably a par three, that you could reach. So your mission is to get that ball on the green and two putt for par. If you do that and you bogey every other hole, you just shot 89. So if you if you break it up that way, you kind of go, oh, well, that's not so hard. You're giving yourself permission to screw up, and you're not trying to be perfect. The other thing that's going to happen is if there's, let's say you play the same course all the time, and there's a hole or two that drives you crazy. Well, go out on that hole and say, how can I play this hole differently? So I'll give you an example. The LPGA senior, the senior LPGA championship is at French Lake, and it's at the PTI course. And this golf course is one of the hardest golf courses in the world. So this is the clenched butt course. You're either on the green or you're dead. Okay? So <laughs> there's two par three, number eight and number 16. And number 16 really owns me. Eight kind of owns me. 16, I can feel the butt cheeks getting tight before we get to that hole. Right? Well, Alan, who I'm married to, who played on the PGA Tour for 15 years, and he's the second furious ball striker Dave Powell's ever tested, and he's Mr. Shy, quiet, chill, and I'm a competitive control freak. So he would be Ernie Els and I would be Tiger Woods. So I'm like, shut up, i got to hit the ball on the green. Well, I have made seven and eights on number 16. Now, add to that that 16 is the TV hole. So what's on TV camera. It's a tower. So now what Cynthia is saying to me, all this, everybody's going to see you, right? So what happens then the butt cheeks get tighter. So Alan finally said to me, why don't you hit a nine iron off the tee on 16? I go, what? He goes, yeah, hit a nine iron and then chip the ball on the green and make bogey and go to the next hole. I go, are you kidding me? He said, no, that's better than seven or eight. Good point. So for the listeners that have a hole that owns them, why don't you do that and make a bogey? So I finally went to that tee box during the practice round. I said, you know what? I'm going to get over you. You are not going to haunt me anymore. So I found maybe you tee off on a different side of the tee box, right? Instead of the right side of the tee box, maybe you tee off on the left side of the tee box. So you got a different view going at the green or in the fairway. So that you don't, don't hit it out of bounds. Maybe you hit a different club off the tee. So again, if you keep saying, well, there's a couple holes, stop. Don't make excuses. Find a different way to play the hole. And if you do that, then you can break the number you're looking for. Now, breaking 80 is a little more difficult. I can tell you that you're probably adding up the score, you know, and your buddies are doing it for you. Well, all you got to do is par this hole and you're going to 79, then you OB, you know, so stop adding up your score. Don't, and sometimes, again, my evil, you know, my evil twin is Cynthia. So anytime Cynthia goes, oh, be careful, there's the water, it's like, shut up, I'm busy right now. So I talk to Cynthia when she starts telling me to be careful and look out, and I say, you know what, I'm busy right now. I've got to hit this ball right down the fairway. 
if Cynthia says to me, oh, you're 300 power, you could make a lot of money. You could be exempt next year, blah, 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 blah. You know, again, that's always going to happen. Everybody has an evil twin. I call it name that witch. And so um, <laughs> you have to be aware when that person's talking to you, and then you have to say, I'm not going to listen. And I also pretend if I'm two or three under and Cynthia starts talking, I pretend that I'm five or six over and that I'm always thriving and I'm always pursuing. Now, again, I'm willing to admit to you that I've choked my guts out more than most people and because that's the truth. And once you recognize that and you're willing to admit it, it's easier to get over it. If you stay in denial, it's harder. That begs the question. What do we do when we come to a, a hole? Let's say it's a par five and then you, you got to hit it over water to, to reach the green and, and we could get home in two if we hit the, the perfect shot, right? But you know, doubt creeps in, you know, just like you talked about. Your Cynthia, my Christopher starts to creep in and say, we, but you know, if you come up short, you know, you're going to make eight or nine. How do we kind of so, put that in the back or? When do we decide we should go forward and when it's, we're trying to break 80 here and it's probably not the right play? Great question. Depends on your personal behavior style. So there's four different behavior styles. A high D is what I am. I'm a competitive control freak, Tiger Woods, direct driven. A high I is very influencing, lots of fun, Chichi Rodriguez, Christina Kemp. A high S is Alan Miller. Steady, slow, Ernie L., Jason Duffner. A high C is conscientious, analytical, perfectionist. So Cindy Miller would tend to want to go for things more than Alan Miller because Alan wants to hit 14 fairways, 18 greens. Cindy has never, and played for 50 years, has never hit 18 greens in regulation. Why? Because she always screws one up. But Cindy's <laughs> shot, you know, six, seven, eight under par before because I'm really good at twerking. So your mental golf personality, if you will, Alan Miller is not going for the green unless he's got a 70 to 75% chance of making it over. Cindy would go for the green over the water if she's got a 50-50 chance. Knowing that the risk-reward, you know, you could blow it and make double. So that's kind of, once you know who you are, and I've, I've created a customized disc golf assessment. If anybody's interested, email me at cindy at cindymillergolf.com, and I'll send you the link. And you can find out what you are. And once you know what you are, it's so much easier to make clear decisions and stick to your game plan. So, Cindy, talk to me about staying in emotional control. Right. For the for the fifty percent of the time that we don't clear the water, how do we stay in the moment and not let one bad swing, one bad hole turn into us throwing the clubs in the lake? Well, you also have to know who you are, right? And what are what's your skill up, right? There's always a why behind the what. So we've got all these kids playing in all these tournaments, you know. Why did you hit the ball there? And the only, the, my last lesson tonight that I just finished before I got on with you, he said, I was so nervous peeing off. I said, you're the first kid that's ever admitted that besides our own son. Nobody admits that. God bless you. That's awesome. 
So again, you have to know that you're nervous. And when you're nervous, you're thinking about being nervous and you're not paying attention to the task at hand. So if you didn't pay attention to the task at hand and what you're doing while you're swinging, that's your fault. So again, why did I hit the bad shot? Did I make a clear decision or do I not have the skill level to be able to carry the water? You know, and again, it's all about looking in the mirror. That comes back to my hit box. You know, how bad does it have to hurt to be willing to change? And are you willing to look in the mirror? So if I say to myself, you know, I'm not really comfortable. This is not a great lie. I'm not going to take the chance because I know that I'm going to be ticked off if I miss the shot. On the other hand, if I have a great lie, right, um, and I and I make a bad swing, I just made a bad swing. If you're thinking about hitting the shot over the water when you're swinging, you're not paying attention to your swing, and that's your fault. <laughs> Indeed. Cindy, just a couple more before I let you go, and um, I had the privilege of having Jane Gettys on the show last week, and for those who weren't with us, Jane is not only a two-time LPGA major champion, she's also the commissioner of the LPGA Legends Tour, and um, as you mentioned, uh, with the, the tournament coming up at Prince Lick, we actually have the U.S. Women's Senior Open coming up first in late July. So are we going to be able to uh, see you there and on at the other four uh, Legends events that are currently on the schedule? I am uh, in denial about my birth certificate. So, yes, I'm going to try <laughs> to qualify for the U.S. Women's Senior Open. And I might, if I qualify, I might even be the oldest one in the, in the thing. But I'm not dead yet, and I um, am still in denial, and I'm not as old as I really am, or I don't think I'm as old as I really am, whatever the saying is. But, yeah, I'm going to try to play. <laughs> That's awesome. You you mentioned your son a moment ago. I saw Jamie played a few weeks ago in the Azalea Invitational at the uh, Country Club of Charleston. Talk about the status of Jamie's game. How did you see that? I do my research. My poor kid. So he's a high-D personality, right? He starts out. The second round, I think it was, he's five under par on the front, makes two doubles, 268 or 69, right? Right. He starts out the first round, he has triple 275. So, again, and he lives in Buffalo, so there's the excuse, right? He hasn't played golf outside. So, get over it. That's too bad. You're the one that decided to go down there and play before you got any rounds. And, you know, again, he was grateful he got invited in the Porter Cup. I think he's playing in the uh, the Monroe as well. Uh, he and Allen are going down to the Walker Cup next year. And, and, Alan, and Jamie can't wait. He's like, yeah, you got to go. We gotta, can we go? It's a Seminole. And Jamie's got a bunch of friends that are members of Seminole and all these old guys are going to be there. So they're all excited. But Jamie's doing great. He's on the New York State Golf Committee. He's going to be president of the New York State Golf Association in a couple years. And um, he's on the board of Children's Hospital. We're doing 117 holes to raise money for Children's Hospital Buffalo. And I'm going to help him out. And I think I might even caddy him for Josh Allen in one of his million rounds that day. Wow. I 18 holes myself. Yeah, I played with Thurman Thomas and Patty Thomas last year. So we're raising money for all kinds of good charities in Buffalo. Cindy, before I let you go, remind our listeners how they can stay up to date with all the great things you're doing whether it's on your website or it's on social media. CindyMillerGolf.com. Email me, Cindy at CindyMillerGolf.com, and all my social media is at CindyMillerGolf. Thank you so much, Chris. You're great. I love you, Cindy. You know that. 
You're the best. I can't wait to catch up with you uh, again soon. All the best to uh, to you and Alan and your family. Uh, stay safe up there, and I look forward to hearing about the great things you're going to continue to do the rest of this year. Thanks, Tony. Have a great evening. Bye-bye. See you, Cindy. That's the great Cindy Miller, folks. Again, cindymillergolf.com. I love her website, and I love the video right there on the homepage. And, and she and Alan are fantastic people, and, uh, you know, I've been truly blessed to spend uh, as much time as I have with Cindy again tonight, the seventh time with her being on the show. She makes the segment so much fun. We look forward to catching up with her again real soon. All right, before I get to my next guest, Susie Whaley, I want to give a shout out to a few of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Squares Golf. Are you like me, always considering new golf equipment, maybe a new driver? I'll tell you what, let me reset your thinking because I discovered Squares Golf Shoes. The patented square toe provides balance, stability, and a wider base for increased connection to the ground, effectively increasing your swing speed by 2.2 miles per hour, an average of 9 yards of distance. Independent tests prove it. That's right. It's proven in science. Go to squares.com. That's S-Q-A-I-R-Z.com and get Squares 30-day money-back guarantee. Use promo code DISTANCE for $20 off. Remember, Distance comes from swing speed, and swing speed comes from your connection to the ground. And folks, I wouldn't tell you about it if I didn't experience it for myself. I've never felt more stable in my golf swing, which allows me to swing faster and launch it further. Squares, the distance golf shoe. I also want to give a shout out to another new sponsor, Bionic Gloves. Do what you do better with Bionic Gloves. Whether you're looking To own the golf greens, improve your workouts, or get your hands dirty in the garden, Bionic Gloves has you covered. Designed with a hand specialist, Bionic Gloves feature patented innovations that help improve your grip. The strategically placed anatomical relief pads also prevent calluses and blisters, while the web and motion zones allow for greater dexterity and flexibility. Head over to BionicGloves.com to find the perfect glove to up your game. And I want to remind you about our friends over at Zexio. In 2001, Zexio Strixon began making clubs for men and women, and they've improved on those clubs every year since. Every part of Zexio clubs are made exclusively for Zexio. Everything is light and balanced. Swing weights are made to give us the highest smash factors. And the best part of getting fit for Zexio clubs is hitting it higher and straighter than ever before, changing your game. Zexio Clubs are a Golf Digest Hot List Gold winner for 2021. Congratulations to Zexio Ambassador MB Park for her five-stroke victory earlier this year at the Kia Classic. It was her 21st victory, and she did so using Zexio 11 Woods and 10 Irons. See how Zexio can help your game as well. Go online to ZexioUSA.com and pick which set is right for you. All right, now next on the tee with me is Susie Whaley. Let me give you some background on Susie. She played her college golf at the University of North Carolina, where she lettered for four years. Her senior year, she tied for 43rd in the NCAA National Championship. She helped the team win several team titles while she was there, including two Duke Spring Invitationals, which we'll talk about in just a minute. She graduated with her degree in economics. She played on the LPGA Tour for a few years in the early 90s. In 2003, she became the first woman to qualify to play in a PGA Tour event since Babe Diedrich Zaharias did it in 1945. She qualified to play in the Greater Hartford Open by winning the Connecticut PGA Championship. She won just about every tournament there is to win in the state of Connecticut, including the Women's Open three times. 
She's competed in the USGA Senior Women's Open and the Senior PGA Championship. She's annually recognized as one of Golf Magazine's Top 100 Instructors, as well as Golf Digest Top 50 Instructors and LPGA's Top 50 Instructors. She is a PGA Master Professional, and she was recently the first female president of the PGA of America, and I couldn't be more honored to have her with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hi, Susie. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Chris. How are you? I'm fantastic. Susie, how are you? I am doing great. I am uh, in Palm Beach, Florida, uh, so no complaints. Had my second shot yesterday, so so life is getting better. <laughs> Good for you. Susie, I want to start our time tonight by really kind of going back to the beginning with you. Where where did the love of golf come from, and were your parents big golfers? My mother was a big golfer. My mom loved the game, and she's the one who actually introduced me to the game, which, you know, I say it like that because at that time, it was mostly dads that were introducing uh, daughters to the game. There weren't a whole lot of girls playing, um, but it was my mom. My mom was an avid athlete. She loved sports and was looking for a pal. and found me on the driving range one day with some boys from the pool <laughs> hitting balls. and um, That was really the beginnings of my early golf career in Syracuse, New York. And Susie, I read that really starting at the age of three, you sort of had the need for speed and even went uh, as far as to go to the University of Colorado first before North Carolina and tried out for their ski racing team. Talk about that. Yeah, I was an avid ski racer. Skiing was my passion uh, all the way through middle school and high school. I went away to a ski racing academy uh, in Waitsfield, Vermont. We raced out of Sugarbush and uh, called uh, Green Mountain Valley School. And I was hoping to uh, stand on the podium one day at the Olympics like so many of us do as athletes, um, listen to the anthem, unfortunately, because that, that did not happen. Um, but you know, I love ski racing, still love to ski. Um, and then golf, uh, I was recruited for golf at the time. Certainly, we didn't have the amount of junior events there are today to uh, be recruited. So you were really recruited off your state championship, which um, I grew up in upstate New York, as I said, and uh, played the New York State Junior Girls. And then I was, I played in the USGA uh, Junior. And then I also qualified for the US Open in high school, which got me some eyeballs uh, as far as college was concerned. For golf, I was an early Title IX athlete and ended up going to the University of North Carolina. And while you were there, another uh, another great player that uh, was one of your teammates, Debbie Doniger, who's uh, been a wonderful friend of the show and uh, another great instructor in the game as well. You guys are teammates at the University of North Carolina. What was it like teaming with Debbie? <laughs> we are teammates. Uh you know, we call her Dee, and uh, she was amazing. Dee, she was a freshman when I was a senior, and, you know, she was full of energy, uh, brought just great fun to our golf team. Katie Peterson was part of the team then. Donna Andrews, a major winner on the LPGA Tour, was a part of our golf team. So um, we had a strong team, and uh, we just we had a lot of fun. We had great memories. I, I think about it today because my daughter ended up playing for Chapel Hill. And when I saw their van versus our van, it made me laugh out loud <laughs> of what we traveled in versus what they get to travel in now. You know, they've got Wi-Fi, lectures, and, you know, seats that recline. And we had, you know, three benches on the floor. And whoever got the floor was, you know, they lucked out because they got to sleep. <laughs> so when you were at Carolina, and a couple of times 
you guys won the Duke Invitational Championship. What's it like as a Carolina player to win that tournament twice on Duke soil? It's so funny you ask. I just finished doing the coverage uh, for the ACC Women's Championship, and um, Dan Brooks is still the coach at Duke. My niece, my sister's daughter, is playing for Duke. And so when I heard you Ooh. mention it early in the preview, I, I giggled because Duke just won the ACC championship. And it brought me back to the days of playing against Duke and, uh, you know, really Tar Heel strong in this household, right? <laughs> so the only thing I told my niece was, you know, and I love her to death, she was with us during the summers. And um, I said, well, you know, you just can't expect me to wear that blue ever. <laughs> I will always be here for you, but I will not be in that blue. And uh, I was very good on the telecast. I didn't show any of my Tar Heel uh, colors coming through, I don't think. And uh, I got to be honest with you, that Duke squad this year is really strong. You mentioned your daughter, Kelly, following in your footsteps there at Carolina. She had a great college career, set the all-time record for the 54-hole uh, tournament score at 11 under 205. Plus, she won the Connecticut State Amateur three times. Your other daughter, Jennifer, played at Quinnipiac, and you volunteered to help coach while she was there. And, and you know, I read that both neither one of your girls really grew up liking the game. They hated the game. How did you get them to change their mind? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're quoted everywhere saying that. You know, when they were little, um, we, they just came with, People always say to me, how would you get the girls to play golf? And I'm like, you know, they didn't have an option. Their option was nine holes or 18. It's what my husband and I do. My <laughs> husband's a PGA professional as well. And, you know, they didn't have to love it, but they were going to learn it. And it was just what we did as a family together. And, and the very early onset, you know, they loved it because I gave them, I bribed them, right? Like any, any good mom does or dad, you know, I gave them M&Ms and let them drive the cart when they weren't supposed to. And um, so between driving the cart and playing golf, driving the cart always won out when they were little. Um, but, you know, as they hung out at the golf course with us and as they met, great friends to the game, which they still have today, um, they ended up getting good at it and, and really starting to love it. And so my oldest daughter now, she, she claims she's a corporate golfer now, so she plays um, in a ton of corporate outings and uh, has a ball doing it. And then Kelly is still an aspiring um, professional. She is playing in Kansas this week on the Symmetra Tour um, and, you know, just working very hard trying to get more starts and, and we'll head to tour school in the fall. You um you played a couple of seasons out on the LPGA Tour. Talk about competing at that level. What was that like? Oh, it was so fun. I mean, that was a whirlwind. But again, it was very different than it was today. Um, you know, Donna and I giggle about the fact that we used to take the bread and the peanut butter out of the locker room, right? <laughs> we didn't have any money. <laughs> so we just traveled around. We drove everywhere. Um, and I sound like, you know, one of the people who talks about, you know, walking up the hill five miles in the snow to school. But. Um, you know, we didn't have cell phones, so we all had CD radios and would caravan to the next event that we got in, and we would talk to each other over CD radios. And, you know, I think I look back at it at least um, with really great memories, even though I played horribly. Uh, I made, I think, three cuts. Uh, my first year promptly got fired and lost my card, uh, and then realized what I had lost and, and worked very hard to, to get my card back uh, working nights so I could could um, play during the day um, and prepare. But, you know, for me, it was an experience I will never trade. I, you know, I thought the worst thing that ever happened to me was losing my card, and it was the absolute best thing that ever happened to me. So I look back at the LPGA with really fond memories. 
And Susie, you were the first woman to do a lot of things, like being the first one to qualify to play in a PGA Tour event since Babe Zaharias did it in 1945. What a tremendous accomplishment. Was it embraced as such, or did the guy sort of raise an eyebrow not too thrilled? When I qualified, uh, I had won the section championship, as you mentioned, and uh, the section champion earned this exemption to what then was called the Greater Harvard Open now called the Travelers Championship, held at the same place at TPC River Highlands. And I never imagined they would extend me the invitation. So I didn't enter the tournament seeking um, to play in a PGA Tour event. I entered the tournament because I loved to play competitively and, and wanted to win a golf tournament. Um, my mom was my caddy. And after we had um, finished uh, the final round and, and we had won, um, I got a phone call from the tour asking if I was going to accept the exemption. And, you know, I... I I literally hesitated and said, I, gosh, I don't know. Let me think about it. Um, which, you know, I think about that now and the poor person on the phone must have been like, what? <laughs> um, and it took me, uh, the tournament wasn't for nine more months. And it took me a good three months to decide to play for multiple reasons. I had two very young daughters. Um, they were eight and six at the time. I had a full-time job as a head golf professional, uh, at a public golf course in Avon, Connecticut. My husband was working full-time. So, I mean, we were the typical, you know, dual working household with two small children, a lot on our plate, but, you know, life was great. And all of a sudden now this was thrown at me alongside of 3,000 international interviews and, um, you know, I'm thankful social media wasn't a thing then. I can only imagine uh, what it would have been like if that were the case. But, you know, as I decided to play and as I worked extremely hard to prepare and had this great support network of employees uh, that took on some of my responsibilities, a boss who gave me the freedom to, to play and practice, friends who were picking my children up from school events. Um, you know, it, it, it's something I did not do by myself. Um, and then, you know, I, I really felt compelled to, it was the first time in a very long time um, women were being put on the covers of publications. Golf was being talked about. And I was proud of the fact that I was part of that conversation. And, and Annika was part of that conversation and Michelle Wee and, Women's golf was getting attention, and, and I wanted my daughters to know that I was going to prepare as hard as I could. I was way outside my comfort zone, but I was going to hold my head high and, and compete. And uh, and it was brave, to be honest with you. Um, and so I think, you know, I don't want to speak for PGA professionals. Uh, that wouldn't be fair from the tour player perspective. But the, the PGA tour professionals that I did get to know during the process, were they respected how I was taking it on. They knew how hard I was working. They knew I didn't take it for granted. They knew I had earned the opportunity and that I was going to play from their same team. And so for me, um, I, I did feel accepted. Uh, Peter Jacobson at the time was a close friend. He played the practice rounds with me uh, with Paul Asinger. Um, and then the, the really cool part about uh, Peter really embracing the whole experience alongside me was he ended up winning the tournament that week. So it was great karma, and uh, it's something I fondly Speaking of Annika, when she played in the Colonial back in 2003, I read she did it with encouragement from you. What did you tell her? I told her the, the same thing I really just said. You know, um, you know, Annika, I didn't, I didn't speak directly to Annika until after she had actually played in the Colonial. And um, I talked to her. It was at the LPGA Championship, which we were both competing in. And she had walked off the green, and I said, well, how was it? <laughs> and she looked at me. And she said it was really hard, but it was probably, you know, something I, I'm so happy that I did. And I was playing in a couple of weeks time and I asked her, 
you know, do you have any advice for me? And uh, she said, you know, just don't get there too early. And I said to her, well, what do you mean? She goes, I just got there too early and it gave me too much time to, to think about it. And what Cindy was talking about earlier about, you know, getting nervous and thinking about outcome versus process. And so I took that to heart and I had planned out by the minute everything I was going to do when I arrived on property, trying to navigate the crowds, getting to the first tee, my warm up. Um, and as I walked under the rope to head up to the first tee, um, a gentleman stopped me and asked me where I was going, a, a volunteer. <laughs> And I said, well, I'm, I'm going to play. And he said, uh, Susie, didn't anybody tell you we're in a 10 minute delay? And, you know, I remember that so clearly <laughs> now because all I could think of was, no, Annika told me not to take too much time, right? So it was one of those moments that I think about now and I laugh about because very few people know that story. But I looked at my husband and I looked at my caddy and I said, well, what should we do for 10 minutes? <laughs> and all of a sudden, there, you know, <laughs> so I don't know what we should do. Um, so it was, it, it kind of lightened the, the mood. And, um, you know, I credit that with a little bit of me being able to actually get it airborne off the first tee. <laughs> yeah, that was my next question. What was it like putting a tee in the ground and the ball on the tee and kind of getting ready to swing it the first time on the first tee? Had to be nerve wracking. Yeah, you, you, you work so hard in, in the, imagining it, right? Your visual, I worked on visualization for nine months with Richard Coop. So I, I really had felt I had done it numerous times over and over in my mind. I had tried to imagine the crowds and the cameras and the people and who I would see and the noise. But there's nothing like that moment, right? And you can, you can get really good at visualizing things and fool yourself that you've done it before. But I'm here to tell you that in that moment, um, it's really tricky to get that ball on the tee. And anybody that uh, is a golfer can relate because it doesn't matter whether you're playing a PGA Tour event like I was playing or whether it's your first time playing an event that's uh, competitive or whether maybe it's your first time playing with, with somebody you don't know um, or playing in a club championship. It, the nerves are nerves. Uh, the golf ball doesn't know where you are. It doesn't know people are watching. It doesn't know, you know, you're playing in front of 40 million people. Um, but you do. <laughs> right? So... Uh, for me, once it got on the tee, I, I just really focused on my routine. I had done that. I had worked really hard on on the amount of time my routine would take and, and the steps I would put in my routine. So I really got caught up in the process instead of the moment so that I could make contact. And I did. I didn't make contact well. I hit it a pop fly about 200 yards down the center. But, man, it felt like I hit it, you know, Bryson Long. <laughs> <laughs> and to that end, you know, we, we hear about in other sports, like, you know, particularly in a, maybe a big football game, you know, after the first hit or whatever, it, it just becomes another football game, uh, whether you're playing in the playoffs or the Super Bowl or whatever. Was it like that for you after that first tee shot? Was it just like being out there playing in any other golf tournament? Or did you kind of, kind no. of carry a little bit of that with you after that? Oh, my gosh, no. I, I, I had imagined the first hole. I, would, I knew it was going to be quite long for me. I knew I probably wouldn't reach it in regulation. But I would come just short of it. And that's exactly what I did. I had a really good second shot to just off the front of the green. I chipped up to about four feet. Great. I, life was fabulous. I was like, you know what? This, is, this, this isn't that hard. It's going to be a great day. And um, the second I stood on the green, I literally lost every feeling in every finger. I, I, I couldn't breathe. I, I got so nervous when I stepped on the green. Um, I really hadn't done a very good job of, of visualizing putting. I had thought so hard about all my shots and not actually the moment in time I'd be on the green. And I walked over to my caddy, which was Michelle McGann's dad, and said, I, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to putt. 
<laughs> he said, "Oh no, you're definitely going to pat it this turn." <laughs> and I said, "No, I, you know, I don't, I don't think I, I don't think I'm gonna. I, I think I'm just going to stand here with you for a little while. He just you go over there and pot. You can do this. Just rock your shoulders, hit the ball in the middle of the putter, and we'll go in the hole." Um, that's what I went over and did. However, I missed and hit it, you know, six feet by. Um, I then missed that and had a small little putt, which felt like it was 40 feet long um, for double. Uh, and when that ball went in the hole, I, I, I truly mean this. I, it was like I made an albatross. I was so happy because I thought I was going to be there for another four putts. Um, and so for me, again, it was a moment that probably was good it happened because I take a deep breath and laugh at myself um, and say, okay, come on, let's go. You know, it's time to play. Let's just go play some golf. And so after the first hole is when um, I, I don't have to say I wasn't um, nervous, but I, I turned the nerves into adrenaline. I turned the nerves into something I could focus and, and try to hone in my skills. And I, I ended up playing the best round of golf I've, I've probably ever played competitively, not score wise, but, um, actually from the yardage I was playing and how I played um, was probably one of the best rounds I've ever played. Susie, you are not only the first female president of the PGA of America, you are the first officer. You rise from secretary to vice president to president, which is the track that happens. But talk about when you became secretary of the PGA of America, and now you know that four years from now, I'm going to be president of the PGA of America. What was that like? I joined the PG of America to play more golf tournaments. My husband was playing uh, weekly and having a ball. And I was a member of the LPGA teaching club professional division, but they didn't, they just didn't have as much opportunity. We had a section championship and a national championship. And I was starting to get a little whiny about it. My husband would come home and I'd say, no, I can't wait. They won't let us play. And he'd say, well, you know, why don't you join the PG of America? And so he called me out and uh, that's what I did. I joined. And uh, people always say, well, did you join to, to be president one day? And I always said, no, I joined to beat my husband. And that was true. And uh, so as I went through that process of joining, I met just the most incredible PGA professionals who were willing to help me with my business, who were willing to mentor me, who um, we so enjoyed uh, socially uh, being around. And it just became this incredible circle and group of people that, that I wanted to be around. And when I started to get involved in governance locally, I, I just loved it uh, for the same reasons, for the network that it built and the people I had a chance to, to meet. Um, and it just worked organically into me running for a national position, which I was elected to be on the board nationally. And then when my term was over, I really wanted to still contribute. I really thought it was important to have a seat at the table and uh, to be able to be a voice. Um, not only for women in the business, but for all PGA professionals. And um, so I, I chose to run for that officer position and was fortunate and honored uh, to have the privilege of representing the 29,000 that are PGA members that wear our logo. So for me, it is an incredible journey and, and one that's not ended. I'm the honorary president currently. And, um, you know, I, I really wear my logo proudly every day. And I'm so, especially the last year and a half. I mean, COVID has just turned the world upside down and PJ professionals across the country have stepped to the plate to offer this incredible solace for so many and so many communities where people are able to get out, and be healthy and well and um, deliver programming to youth that's been uh, done responsibly. And it's just, you know, uh, without that 
connection to a PGA professional, um, I'm not sure we would have had the ability to get golf courses open and, and be able to deliver this great game and have so many new people uh, join us in the game, which is our mission. So uh, I couldn't, you know, the last few years have been uh, really something I'm proud of. As you should. I'm curious, the day after you become president of the PGA of America, what's it like waking up that, that next morning? Are you fulfilled for a career achievement? Or are you thinking to yourself, oh, my God, I'm president of the PGA of America? You know, I, for me, it was more um, because you work alongside of staff at the PGA of America and you work alongside an incredible board of directors uh, who represent our sections across the country. We have 41 sections. So you have leaders that you're working with. And then, of course, you have your officer corps. Um, it's never a singular uh, leader in, in the PGA of America. You know, you're, you're making these decisions together. And oftentimes, yes, as president, you're going to, you know, take the reins and, and really try to direct uh, a strategy. And our, our work in that board is to develop strategies to really elevate and promote PGA professionals uh, and to grow the game. And so for me, uh, you know, the day after didn't honestly feel much different uh, other than I knew I only had two years left to make effective change and to be able to promote and talk about PGA professionals in the way that they deserve. So it was almost like a, a ticking clock that I knew, you know, we had a lot to do. We had a lot of things on our list that we wanted to accomplish. And um, so for me, it was more about, okay, how do I get organized and make sure we get as much we can get done as possible um, for the benefit of PGA professionals. And Faith did you no favor. Right? Dealing with the COVID pandemic during the last year of your tenure, what was it like trying to figure out how to navigate a course amid what essentially is a worldwide crisis? Yeah, I think anybody that was a leader – um, well, I mean, everybody is, right, of their own families. But anybody that was a leader of a company or an organization, um, you had to take immediate action to um, pivot. And for the PGA of America, it was clear to our board and to our officers and staff that it, it had to be people first. So many of the things that we had prioritized, we shifted from to make sure that we could help our membership. And so some of those things we instituted was the Golf Emergency Relief Fund because we had members that we knew we were going to be out of work uh, immediately, and we didn't know for how long. Um, the back-to-golf efforts where we would lobby with the other allied industries to ensure that we were telling golf story in a way that uh, public officials would understand that golf could be delivered responsibly, and it was an outside activity, and that with a PGA professional at the helm, uh, that we could manage that. And that just was an enormous undertaking because county to county, City to city, state to state, all had different guidelines. And so we were trying to update that on a daily basis for our PGA professionals so they understood what those policies were, where they lived, how they could navigate them, um, how they could navigate the CARES Act, uh, how we could help them uh, with the Golf Emergency Relief Fund. Um, but it was really about human capital. And, you know, that's the most important thing for, for most entities and most companies. And we knew our brand. Uh, was very strong in the marketplace, uh, domestically and internationally. Um, and so the second thing we had to address was our partners and our championships and how were we going to navigate those commitments and those contracts when the world really wasn't open to travel. And so we focused immediately on our KitchenAid Senior PGA Championship, our PGA Professional Championship, and uh, the KPMG Women's PGA Championship, and then, of course, the PGA Championship and the Ryder Cup. 
Um, so all those decisions were being made, um, being discussed on a daily basis. It was, uh, it was, uh, a, 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 there was no separation between day and night. And just like, just like everybody else has talked about, uh, in any business, um, weekends where there was no such thing. And, um, you know, you're taking emails at five in the morning and, and, and at midnight, um, because we have a very diverse membership of all across the country and around the world. So it was, um, it was a real challenge, but, you know, we met that head on and uh, we helped a lot of people. And as I said, you know, golf is in a, an incredible place right now. Um, we're up year over year in every category, uh, equipment, you know, junior golf, adult player development, women's golf. Um, so rounds of played are up and, uh, you know, we just want to be able to look forward and, and make sure we can retain those uh, that came to the game, but also highlight that core customer that, that really trusted us and uh, came to the golf course. Uh, as much as possible, and, and that's something that we're grateful for and thankful for. Is you know this is our business, and this is how we take care of our families. Susie, just a couple more before I let you go. And I had the privilege of having Jane Geddes on the show last week. I'm partnering with Jane and the the Legends Tour this year to promote what those great ladies are doing. I know you've played in a couple of senior events. Are we going to see you out on the Legends Tour this year? <laughs> Yeah, you know, you never know. I, uh, I, I signed up for the USDA, um, senior women's qualifier. I'm hoping to get to that, uh, so I can be able to compete and try to play. Um, so that's a qualification process. I'm not just in the event. Um, I have a couple conflicts with the LPGA senior this year, but I'm, I am going to play locally, um, in some chapter and some section events in the South Florida PGA. And, I, and I'm really looking forward to that too. So. Um, I've got a lot going on on my plate, but playing is important to me, and I'm going to try to squeeze as much of it is as I can. Susie, we've talked about the pressure that's been placed on you over your career in playing in some events. Let's flip that around. When you're playing in a pro-am now and people find out that they're paired with, at the time, the president of the PGA of America, now the honorary PGA of America, do people feel pressure to play well? Because you can't just go out there and hack it around when you've got the president of the PGA in the cart next to you? <laughs> you know, I always try to make people just realize that, you know, we're, we're just out having a great day. And I, I don't know of any better day than a day on the golf course, and whether you play horribly or whether you play really well. I think all of us are disappointed when we play poorly, but you're always going to have one or two uh, great shots that bring you back. You're going to have a, co- a conversation that makes you laugh. Um, you know, you're going to tell a story of, of, you know, oh gosh, you think that's embarrassing. You can't imagine the shot I hit last week. So I always try to make people feel really comfortable. Um, but I understand if they're nervous because as I said earlier, on that first tee, if you're not a little nervous, probably not going to play very well. So I don't tell people not to be nervous. I just tell them, you know, channel that energy into something positive. Focus on what you want to have happen, not what you think could happen. Stay away from the what if and tell yourself where you'd like to hit the golf ball. doesn't mean it'll always go there, um, but at least you're in a mindset to have some fun and, and to play uh, well. And, and you, know, you never know. You might just hit the center of the face and find some fairways and some greens, um, which I love when that happens because then I get a little break because <laughs> I certainly don't get all the fairways and the greens. Susie, how can our listeners stay up to date with all the great things you're doing and follow you, whether it's online or it's on social media? For me, I am uh, at Nearsaw, which is in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. I'm working on a project uh, called The Park in West Palm Beach, which is a really cool project. But probably the easiest way for people to follow me is just uh, follow me on Twitter at Susie Whaley or follow me on Instagram at, at Mama Whales. 
Susie, it's been a huge thrill having you as part of the show tonight. I hope you'll come back and join me again sometime. It was a lot of fun. That was my pleasure. Thanks so much for talking about golf, and uh, it was a treat to be on. Stay safe, Susie. All the best to you and your family. Look forward to catching up with you again soon. You too. Have a great night. Thanks, Susie. You too. That's the great Susie Whaley, folks, and just a tremendous human being and uh, all the great things that she has achieved over the course of her career. Kudos to her and her family, and her girls are out there, too, and so I look forward to keeping up with Kelly on the Symmetra Tour, and then hopefully we get the privilege of having Susie back on the show again before too long. All right, before I get to my next guest, Brandon Stukesbury, I want to give a shout-out to a few of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Finn Cycles. It's time to rethink golf. The game is at a tipping point. The young people we need in the game don't have four and a half hours to spend out on the course. Pairing Finn Cycles with a desire to play ready golf can cut playing time in half because all golfers go directly to their own golf ball. Plus, it's tons of fun. Go online to finscooters.com and click on Find a Finn for a course that has them near you. I also want to give a shout out to our friends over at Golf Pride. Did you know that Golf Pride lets you rep your favorite team while also using the number one grip in golf? Your team, your grip, MCC Hybrid Grips, the number one grip series worldwide. Features an exclusive brush cotton cord in the upper hand for all-weather performance, with premium rubber in the lower hand for added feel. The new MCC Team Series is available in a variety of new color combinations, so you can rep your favorite team out on the course. Available in standard and midsize. Check it out online by going to golfpride.com. And folks, this segment of the show is sponsored by our friends over at the PGA Tour Superstore. This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at PGATourSuperstore.com. Now back to Chris and more of the show. All right, now next on the tee with me is Brandon Stukesbury. Brandon is from Jacksboro, Tennessee, which is about 25 miles from Knoxville. He earned his Bachelor of Science degree in Plant Sciences from the University of Tennessee. He is the head golf professional at Metairie Country Club in Metairie, Louisiana. He was previously the director of instruction at Idle Hour Club, which is a little south of me in Macon, Georgia. Brandon is also the author of two books titled The Wedge Book and Owner's Manual for Your Short Game, which can be had on his website, StukesburyGolf.com, or over on Amazon, where it was a number one bestseller. His second book is coming out, and it is titled The Putter Book, an Owner's Manual for Your Green Game. Brandon was named one of the best young teachers in America in 2018 and 2019 by Golf Digest. Since 2010, they have consistently named him one of the best teachers in Georgia, obviously before he went out to Louisiana. In fact, he was named Teacher of the Year in Georgia in 2015 and 2018, and I'm excited to have him with me here tonight on Next on the Tee. Hey, Brandon, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, man, I, I thank you so much. I'm, I'm honored to be included and, and looking forward to a, to a fun conversation. Thank you. So, Brandon, congratulations are in order because I see you just became the head golf professional at Metairie Country Club. I'm sorry you left Idle Hour before I had a chance to come down there and see you and make him, but congrats on the new role, my friend. Yeah, thank you. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a great step for me. It's really the next, uh, the next opportunity for me to have my you know, my own operation and to, to get to kind of put my thumbprint on a, on a great old classic club. Um, it's a Seth Rayner design built in 1922. It's actually currently under a complete course renovation. 
um, and it's going to reopen in October uh, to a brand new, you know, brand new golf course that's back to its Rainer roots. So it's really an exciting project, and I couldn't be more than, you know, couldn't be happier to be where I'm at to get things going down here. Brandon, as I was looking over the course of your career, you spent some time with Jim McLean down at his academy at Doral. Talk about how you caught on with Jim and, and uh, what you learned from him during the time you spent there. Yeah, so, I, you know, pretty early on, I started my career in, on the operations side, which is where I'm back now. But, um, I, you know, I always knew I wanted to teach, um, certainly at a higher level than I was teaching at at the time. And, and I wasn't sure how to do that. And a really funny story, I'll leave his name out, but a, a fairly well-known golf instructor that I'm sure you'd know if I said his name that worked for Jim McLean at the time wrote an article in Golf Digest or something, Golf Magazine or, you know, one of the big magazines. And at the end of it, it said, for more information, contact him here. Uh, and, and at like 24 years old, I blindly wrote him an email. Um, and, and I said, you know, listen, I'd, I'd, I'd like to learn more about teaching and I don't know where to start. I'd appreciate it if you wouldn't mind talking to me. And he called me like 10 minutes after I sent the email. Uh, didn't know the guy from Adam. And he said to me, you know, look, if you really want to do this, you need to get your butt down at Doral. Um, you know, where the best in the world are here and we're learning and we're, you know, we're teaching and we're, you know, we're, we're a family. And, and it took me a couple of years to kind of get my career to a place to where I could do that. But eventually I did just that. And I made some incredible friends. I made some incredible connections and, and colleagues that I still keep in touch with. And, and it was in, it was a great year. You know, Jim taught me a lot, taught me things that I still use today, every day. Um, and I have great respect for Jim and, and, and what he has built over the years and, and what he does for teachers. Um, and so that, that set me on the path full-time instruction for a little over a decade. Um, and in the, recently in the last two to three years, I've worked my way back into operations. And, and to be honest, that was always the plan. You know, when I went to work for Jim, I really wanted to learn how to be a better teacher. And, you know, life life happens. and and, you know, a job changes, and I ended up staying in that side of the business a lot longer than I ever thought I would. But but it was an incredible experience that I look back on daily and use things from 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 that from that year of my life almost every day. So it was a good time. I worked for him at Doral um, when he had his old academy, and it's now moved over to the Biltmore in Coral Gables. Uh, so it's a little different setup now, but those are some good times for sure. And from there, you go out to Las Vegas and become the director of instruction at the PGA Tour Academy. So what got you to leave Florida to head out to the desert? My wife, actually. Um, we were not married at the time. And when I finished, it was sort of timed like this on purpose. She was finishing um, her school. She is a veterinarian, and she was finishing vet school at the same time the season was coming to a close down in Doral. And, uh, so we I finished at Doral, she finished school, and we got married, and her job took us to Las Vegas. She got an incredible opportunity out there, and, and we were, you know, newly married, and you know, in our mid-20s, and and uh, moving to Vegas seemed like a really cool idea, and it was great. Uh, you know, we spent a little over six years out there, or, or right at six years, and we had, a, we had a great time. Vegas is a great city, and even though we lived out there at a really hard time, you know, in our country, we moved to Vegas um, around Memorial Day of 2008, and you know, most of us remember what happened to the you know the global economy 
particularly the, the U.S. economy in, in the, the, you know, the late summer of 08. And so here we are in maybe the hardest hit city in America, uh, just living it up and having a great time. So it was a cool experience and I had a great job and a great place. We were, our academy was on site at TPC Las Vegas. Um, used to be called TPC Canyons, but it's been TPC Las Vegas for a while. And, and, uh, you know, it was, it was great. It was a wonderful job. And, and uh, I got really involved in the governance, you know, out there within the, the PGA chapter and, and section. So it was a it was a cool experience um, and, and one that I look back on fondly for sure. And, Brendan, I have to imagine playing the game in Las Vegas is a whole lot different than playing the game in South Florida. You go from a sort of a wet, humid climate to a very dry one. For people planning to go out to Vegas, what should they be prepared for regarding the climate impact on their game and shot selection? Yeah, so there's two things I would say about that. Number one, try to avoid going in the spring if you can. Um, the weather is fabulous, but it is incredibly windy in Las Vegas in the spring. Uh, and when I say windy, I'm talking about 25-mile-an-hour sustained wind uh, is a daily occurrence. And so the fall of the year is same weather, but uh, the conditions are a lot better. That's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is if you're going to Vegas to play golf, drink a lot of water. I don't care how thirsty you think you are, you need more water. And so, uh, you know, obviously out there, you, you don't, sweat does not accumulate on your skin and evaporate. So you don't know that you're sweating, but you're sweating. And so you always need to drink a lot of water. Playing golf in Vegas is really interesting. You know, the ball runs and rolls forever, uh, and the ball flies. Vegas sits at about 2,200 feet above sea level, and so you get a little bit of extra distance out of the golf ball because of where it is, and then the air is very, very thin because there's no humidity in the air, and so you get a little bit of extra flight out of it out there as well. And so playing golf in Vegas is really cool. Everybody oversees in the winter, and so you can play in the – you know, in the summertime and it be Bermuda grass. And then by the time October rolls around, you're playing on ryegrass, which is a really neat, you know, contrast. Uh, and so, you know, I had, a, I had a great time out there and golf is, most people don't believe me when I say this, but golf in that city is not particularly very big. The golf market is not very big, but, but man, the golf courses they have out there are really special and, and, uh, and, and, and some great facilities. So it was it was a, a good few years that I look back on um, and, and smile. Brandon, I want to talk about your book, The Wedge Book, and we talk a lot about the short game on this show. But what are some of the things that uh, our listeners are going to learn when they pick up that book? Yeah, so I'll tell you a little bit about why I wrote it back now, I guess, almost six years old or a little over six years old. I tried to get better at teaching short games. I wanted to be a better teacher at short game. I found myself doing a lot of golf schools with the company that I worked with where folks would come in for two or three days at a time. And, uh, you know, the, I found that my best chance at getting them better faster was to get them better in short game. And so I tried to, to, to start doing some research to learn how to teach short game a little bit better. And to be honest with you, I didn't find a whole lot. And there's still not a lot out there. You know, there, there are some good works for sure, but, but compared to the information that you find on full swing, you know, there's just not a lot of information out there specifically about short game. And so I, I read what I could. I traveled and I watched golf instructors and I shadowed people and, 
you know, and I learned what I learned. And, and eventually it just got to the point where I thought, you know, I, I, I want to share this because, you know, I have this way of doing it and I have this way I've learned to teach it by some of the best in the business. And, and there's just not a lot of information out there. And so I saw an opportunity and, I, you know, I wrote a book and the book ended up being a little over a hundred pages. You know, it, it wasn't, uh, it was, it was never meant to be, you know, this detailed, you know, deep dive into short game. It was meant to really be a 15,000 foot view of, of what it's like to, to start right on the edge of the green and work your way back out to about 40 or 50 yards away. Um, and you know, it, 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 it came on the market in, in August and a week later, it was a number one Amazon bestseller. And I checked three days ago and it's still sitting at number one six years later in its category. And so I was blown away by its reception and by its success. I never expected the book to be that popular. But uh, but it, it's been really awesome. And, and, and the success of the Wedge book is really why I pivoted and, and decided to write the second book. That was never part of the plan. But but I felt like, you know, I had a similar opportunity in the world of putting and, and thus the putter book was born. But but the Wedge book was a cool step for me. You know, I mean, it it, it made me an author. It made me a best selling author and it gave me a lot of credibility in, in our business, um, you know, and and. And it was a really neat experience. I, I appreciate so much my co-writer Matt Rudy and and Tim Oliver who did the, the graphics for me. And it just it was a really special project for me that, that turned out way better than I ever expected it to. Brandon, I want to pick your brain and get some short game tips. Starting really with bunker play. I'm a terrible bunker player. I always try to you know keep speed in my swing and propel the ball out of the bunker, but I either thin it way over the green or I hit it fat and the ball stays in the bunker and I saw your video on bunker shots on your YouTube channel. Fantastic stuff. And one of the things that I liked that I really never saw or heard anybody talk about before was when opening the face of our, whether we're hitting a sand wedge or a lob wedge, to have the grooves face your front, your lead foot, your lead toes and pointing back towards that. I'd never heard anyone sort of draw that line for us. Talk about how that can make us more successful in getting the ball out of the bunker. Well, I, getting a ball out of the bunker is all about managing low points. Uh, an easier way to say that would be managing where the club hits the ground. Um, and that's nothing really new because we have to manage where the club hits the ground if we're hitting a wedge shot out of the fairway, too. As a matter of fact, we have way more ability to miss our spot in a bunker and still have some success than we do when we're doing it out of a fairway. And So people get kind of scared of bunker shots. Uh, when it really should be the opposite. They, I really do believe that a greenside bunker shot might be the easiest shot in the game. And, and, and I'm not downplaying its challenge, but relative to hitting the same shot out of a fairway lie, you can make some mistakes out of a bunker and the ball will still come out and end up on the green. So, um, you know, the, the, the groove to the big toe, you know, was just something that, that, that ended up being easy for me. To, to relate to people, you know, people always ask you, well, how much is too much or how much is enough? And, and, you know, really opening the face is all about presenting the bottom of the golf club a particular way to the bunker that allows you to take advantage of the, how the sole of the wedge is designed. Um, you know, bounce has become a bit of a buzzword, but that's exactly what it does. It exposes the bounce and sort of 
puts you in a position to use the sole of the wedge in a, in a you know in a favorable way. That the more you open the face, the more bounce you expose. But there is a point where you can go too far, and so I just felt like that was a, a great way to explain it. If you just take your stance, if you just open the grooves until they point at your big toe, that's usually pretty safe. Um, and so it's interesting to hear you say that. I you know I never I'd never realized that that was uh you know wasn't something that was floating around out there, but but it seemed pretty easy to me to to, to talk about it in a video. And so um, you know bunker shots can be can be problematic and can, can be really you know uh, scary to people, but they really don't have to be. You just have to do a couple things right. So let's back up a little bit and staying in a bunker. What about fairway bunker shots? What tips can you share for how we can make clean contact and get that ball out? Yeah. So so here's what I would tell you: you have the ability to make clean contact hitting a seven iron out of the fairway then you have the ability to make clean contact out of a fairway bunker. Because at the end of the day, that shot really isn't any different than a shot out of the fairway. Out of the fairway, we're still supposed to hit the ball before we hit the ground with the club. Out of a fairway bunker, you're supposed to hit the ball before you hit the ground. And so what I find out, what I find most people do in fairway bunkers is because they they're scared to death of them and they think that something has to be done differently. They end up manipulating their bodies and their golf swings, trying to do something different when all they really have to do is swing the golf club the same way. I'll tell you, man, the only, the only change I would recommend most people to make out of a fairway bunker, if you have consistent contact out of a, you know, off a fairway already, just move the ball back in your stance about a half a ball from where you would normally play it with the club you have. That just hedges your bet a little bit that you'll catch ball first. You might hit it a touch thin, but usually folks have their expectation level a little lower coming out of a fairway bunker anyway. And hitting it thin is not going to be the worst thing. People get all you know all twisted up you know out of a fairway bunker. I just it, it's easy if you just treat it the same as you would any other golf swing with a little bit of a hedge with the ball you know, a half a ball back from normal, and I think you'll be okay. Greenside bunker shots are a little bit different, but fairway bunker shots aren't that bad. And, Brandon, another one of the videos that you've done that I really love, and and I learned something again, was about pitch shots. You talk about one of the keys to being successful is getting the center of our chest, our sternum, in front of the ball. Talk about how that works, and then how does that also impact shaft lean and help us, uh, you know, get that ball lean and get it closer to the hole. Yeah, so so I I won't relate chest position to shaft lean. Here's why: because you really have the capacity and the capability to manipulate the shaft however you need to, based on the shot you want to hit and the lie you have. And so if you put me in the rough and the ball was sitting up just a little bit off the ground, which is the most forgiving, you know, lie you could have. I could deliver the shaft leaning forward. I could deliver it neutral, or I could even deliver it backward. And all three of those produced very different trajectories on the shot, and I would do all that with my chest in the same position. So don't think about the chest and its position relative to the ball as having an impact on shaft. Rather, think about it as, helping you to guarantee that you will hit the ground under the golf ball. 
right? And so you've got to, again, just like a bunker, being a good wedge player is all about managing where the club hits the ground. And the problem people have, and the reason I talk about the chest, is because in wedges, typically we need some trajectory. And a lot of golfers, I would say more golfers than not, add trajectory by moving their chest backward and trying to go under the ball and lift it up in the air. Um, sometimes it's subtle and folks don't even know they're doing it. Um, sometimes it's not so subtle and they're actively trying. And that can really wreak some havoc on controlling where the wedge hits the ground. In other words, when the chest moves backwards, then that means the club's going to hit the ground further and further backwards. So what ends up happening, is you hit one fat, and then you get scared to hit the next one fat, and you end up pulling up and out of it with your arms and hands, and you hit it thin. And then if anybody's guess what happens after that. And so talking about where the chest is relative to the golf ball is an easy way to think about the fact that you have to keep your center of rotation or mass stationary or moving slightly toward the target because that ensures that the club hits the ground in the right spot. If you move your chest backwards, you're dead with a wedge in your hand, especially a finesse wedge around the green. Without question, number one mistake I see most golfers make is moving the chest incorrectly. And so that's why I talk about the chest and its position being over the ball or slightly in front of it. So with that movement of moving the chest slightly forward, talk about weight distribution. Am I still am I still 50-50 or am I starting to get towards 65-70% of my weight on my front foot versus my back? Yeah, I know. It's definitely going to feel heavy in the front foot, uh, but it's really important. There's a couple of ways you can feel weight in your front foot. You can stick your hip out and feel weight in your front foot. But if you do that, then you just move your chest behind it. If you move your chest in front of it, and it wouldn't be this far, but thinking, think about standing straight up and trying to make the buttons on your shirt be over your left knee for a right-handed player, right? And that would almost tilt the spine toward the target. You would certainly feel more weight in your left leg but it would be weight in your left leg the right way instead of a very dangerous way if you stick your hip out. When you stick your hip out, your spine leans away from the target and your chest moves backwards. And so you'll definitely feel more weight in your front or lead foot. It's just important to understand how to feel that weight and why you're feeling that weight. It's because your center, I would call it your upper center, or your center of mass, which usually is around just a bit above your belly button, would be more in front of the ball instead of behind it. And if you think about it that way, yes, you have more weight forward, but it's because your center of mass is more forward. Let's talk about a couple of other things related to the the sort of chip or pitch shot. First of all, you talked about lie a minute ago, getting in a bad lie, or if we're in a real tight lie. Does it matter? Because now getting your sternum a little bit ahead of the ball, does that help alleviate because you're going to catch the ball first and line doesn't come into as big a play? Or do we have to be very careful about 
those types of lies, and does that make an adjustment somehow and how we need to play that shot? Yeah, generally, generally the condition of the lie won't change the technique much. You know, it, it can. Please don't misunderstand. You know, it's possible that if the lie gets too bad or too thin, that you might make a change in your setup to help you accommodate that lie. But generally, the the lie only puts a ceiling on what you're able to do. And what I mean by that is if the lie is very, very tight, then that reduces the number of options you have of things you can make the ball do. If the lie is very, very bad and it's in very deep rough, then that reduces the option of the number of things you can make the ball do in different ways. But it really doesn't change much about how you set up and play the shot. Let me give you an example of what I mean. If the ball's sitting down in deep rough, you're not going to be able to put any spin on the ball whatsoever, and it's going to come off the face very soft. So you have to hit it harder to make it go the same distance. And it's going to have no spin on it. So the only way you have to make a ball that's been hit harder stop faster if you can't spin it is to hit it higher. So you might change the way you play the shot because of the lie, but that really won't change the setup very much. Hopefully I'm making some sense, right? The lie you are. changes how challenging or not challenging the shot is. And it changes what you can or can't do with the ball because of what kind of lie you have. Let's talk club selection, Brandon. Because if we have a just a normal lie, maybe we're somewhere between 5 and 15 yards off the green, nothing spectacular. We're not trying to hit over water or, or trap or anything along those lines. Do you have a club selection? Is it consistent? I'm always I'm always picking up either my pitching wedge or my sand wedge, or do you look at those based on the type of shot, back left pin or that sort of thing? Are you looking at a an eight iron, a nine iron, maybe a seven iron? Talk about club selection. No, 100% based on the type of shot you want to play. And so I, I encourage people to look at wedges as tools in the tool belt. And if you're a carpenter and you have a job to do, you're going to carry a tool belt with you. And when you get to the job site and see what you have to do, then you choose the appropriate tool. I would want people to look at wedges the same way. When you, you always want to choose the shot that best fits the situation. Okay. So in other words, the other way to say that would be the situation determines the type of shot that you play. People get, people make some bad mistakes when they start choosing the shot or the club, and trying to fit that into the situation. Then you start having to manufacture golf shots that you really can't hit very well with that particular club, and that puts a ceiling on how good you're able to be. And I, I to go back to my carpenter example, imagine a carpenter that came to the job site, and he had one screwdriver and a hammer and one wrench. And then the other carpenter came to the site, and he had a tool belt that had 25 tools, which carpenter would you rather have working on your house? And so I think if you look at it that way, as wedges, as tools in a tool belt, and then depending on what kind of shot you need to play, you choose the right tool, 
that's a much better way to look at that when it comes to club selection. Brandon, one more before I let you go. And we've talked about, or at least mentioned, your new book, uh, the putt on putting. Talk about some of the things that we're going to learn once we get that book. Yeah, so it's going to be very similar um, in in sort of style and format to the wedge book. The same way the wedge book, it's meant to kind of be a fifteen thousand foot view of putting. And so I talk about some mechanics. You know, I, I talk about some things that you should and shouldn't do. But it really is designed to be a book for someone who's never thought a whole lot about putting, who's never really concerned themselves a whole lot about what the, you know, is my putter fit for me correctly? Is the head style work for me? You know, for somebody that's never really concerned themselves a whole lot with how do I get better at putting, the really great book for you to sort of educate yourself. It, almost think of it like putting 101. And I talk about the, the, the three, there are four skills, but I'll, I'll tell you, you know, the, the three most important skills to putting. People get caught up in, should I hold my grip like this or should I hold my body or stand like that? And they really don't talk about the skills. And the skills, in no particular order, are can you choose the right line, which would be green reading? Can you start the ball at line control? And can you control the speed? If you can do all three of those things, you're going to be a good putter. How you do those things is far less important than if you do those things. And so, so many people look at it the other way. They concern themselves with how to do something without actually knowing what they're trying to do. And so, it's, it's putting 101, right? You, you know, if you've never really thought much about putting, you learn what's important to make a putt. You learn how club fitting plays a role in that. You learn some practice habits and some diagnostic tools to be able to to diagnose which of the three skills are most deficient. Uh, and it's just, a, it's a really good guide for folks that have never really paid a whole lot of attention to putting. Um, and I can only hope that it ends up being as successful as the West book did. But but hopefully that gives you a little bit of insight into the book and, 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 and what it is. And, and you know, if, if you're interested in putting or putting's a weak part of your game, or you just don't know a whole lot about it, and you think you want to try to get better at it, um, then, then I would recommend you pick it up because you're gonna you're gonna steal away, you know, you're gonna come away with stealing a couple of nuggets that that I know will help. When's the book gonna be available? It's actually out. Um, it it, it oh, came okay. out just a couple of weeks ago, and so um, you can you can get it on Amazon. That's really the best way to get it. Uh, you know, you if you want a signed copy. I'm I'm happy to mail you. Uh, you know, you can reach out to me on my website, and I'm happy to sign a copy and drop it in the mail to you. Um, but Amazon is really the best way to buy it. Um, both are available. Uh, both the putter book and the wedge book are available in both paperback and digital versions. Um, and so, you know, Amazon's the easiest way unless you want it personalized, and then you can just reach out directly to me, and I'll sign one and drop it in the mail. So, Brendan, let our listeners know how they can follow you on your website and then over social media and YouTube as well. Yeah, everything is under Stukesbury Golf. You know, it's a, both a blessing and a curse to have the last name of Stukesbury. You know, nobody knows how to say it or nobody knows how to spell it, but nobody else has got it either. And so, uh, you know, everything <laughs> everything out there is under Stukesbury Golf. My website, 
my Twitter handle, my Facebook page, my Instagram page, YouTube. Everything is under Stoopsbury Golf. And so if you just went to Google and typed in Stoopsbury Golf, you'll find me um, because there isn't another one out there. <laughs> so, uh, you know, everything <laughs> is that way. And, and I, I love to hear from people and, and get feedback from folks and have conversations. So please feel free to reach out to me on any of those mediums. Um, you know, even if it's just a contact on my webpage, you know, that email comes directly to me. Uh, I'm, I'm a one man operation. You know, I see and read all those comments. And so I love to hear from, from golfers. I love to hear from folks who've read the book and, and, uh, and, and like talking about short game and getting better. So, you know, I'd love to hear from anybody that wants to talk. Well, Brandon, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and, and, uh, you know, being a part of this segment. You're fantastic, my friend. So much great content that you have available out on YouTube and, and obviously through both of the books and that sort of thing. I, I sure hope we get the privilege of having you back on the show again sometime. Well, I thank you so much, man. I'm, I'm follow the YouTube. You're going to start to see some more content. Uh, my hair's a little grayer now and than, than it was in some of the videos that you watched. <laughs> so I've got to get some new content up there. That's coming real soon. Uh, once I get my feet under me here at my new spot. Uh, you know, down at Metairie and, and I'm going to be putting some new stuff out. Chris, I can't thank you enough. I had a great time. I'm honored to be a guest and look forward to the next chance I have to come on. I appreciate that very much, Brandon. Best of luck out at Metairie Country Club. We look forward to catching up with you again soon. Stay safe, my friend. Sounds good. Thank you. Have a good night. See you, Brandon. And it's Brandon Stooksbury, S-T-O-O-K-S-B-U-R-Y is the spelling of his last name. Folks, he's got so much great content out on his YouTube page. I can't recommend that enough. You know, I, I don't even know how many tips he's got out there, but it's a bunch, and they're great. So uh, go out there and check it out, and then uh, I'm looking forward to checking out both books. That ought to be a lot of fun, a lot of good information there, too. Goodness knows I can use help with, with both of those things, with the short game and a wedge and with the putter as well. So hopefully we'll uh, we'll get Brandon back on the show again soon. All right, folks, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the Tee. My sincere thanks again to Cindy Miller, Susie Whaley, and Brandon Stooksbury for joining me tonight. Please check out our website, nextonthetee.net, to keep up to date with what our guest schedule looks like. And speaking of which, scheduled to join me next week are our resident director of instruction, Tom Patcher. He's going to be back with us. We'll hear how it went for him at the Florida Senior Open Championship. Ten-time winner between the PGA Tour and the Champions Tour. Tom Pertzer is going to be making his next On the Tee debut next week. Looking forward to having Tom as part of the show. Another one of the top instructors in the game and a great friend as well is Rob Strano. He's going to be back with me. Be sure to check out Rob's show, The Golf Kingdom. It's available on Roku and on Blab TV, and it's a really a fantastic show. A lot of fun. Rob is a, is a hoot to be around and with and is a great instructor on top of all of that. Another first-timer is going to be joining me next week, and that is former Chicago Blackhawks goalie and now TV broadcaster for the St. Louis Blues. Darren Pang is going to be here. Really excited to have Panger as part of the show. So it's going to be a great one, folks. I hope you'll come back and be a part of it with us. Folks, you can stream this show as a podcast on a number of great sites and apps like podcast.co, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Audioboom, Player.fm, Odyssey, If you've got a favorite podcasting app or site, we're probably on it. Just go to the search bar, type in Next on the T. I'm sure you'll find us as a part of that app, whatever it is. 
And folks, if you love the show, do me a favor and please go online to podcastmagazine.com and vote for their show on their Hot 50 list. When you go to their site, click on Hot 50, you're going to find it right at the top of the homepage. You're going to get a drop-down list that includes Hot 50 voting. Click on that and just type in the name of the show next on the T and then my name, Chris Mascaro, over as host. I'd really appreciate your support. Folks, thanks again for choosing to listen to this show tonight. I really appreciate the fact that you continue to make Next on the T a part of your golfing content. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.